Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. It's an OBS full house. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, 847-866-WNUR is our number in studio. You can call us on air, get your opera voice heard. What's your opinion on what we're talking about? 847-866-9688. Seven. All right, tonight Tobias Wright walks you down the hallowed corridors of the OBS Hall of Fame with a look at the life and recordings of one of his favorite opera singers. But first, it's that time of year again. People scrambling for hotel rooms, folks grabbing tickets for sold-out shows, crowds gate-crashing invite-only events. Why, it's the Opera America Conference, of course. I preview the best sessions on the docket at next week's annual meeting of Opera's Movers and Shakers. And then at 9.45 p.m., two-minute drill, everything you need to know from the past week in Opera Land. And our hot takes on those stories. We got a fantastic crew in the house tonight. Oliver Camacho, how you doing? I'm well, but, you know, I feel that, like, when you're going down the panel, that I should be second if Toby's in the room. Because Toby officially, I mean... Predates me. Oh right? no, no, Oliver. Well, let's be honest. Hey, about Oliver, this, age Oliver. before beauty. Come uh, on. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's knowledge. It's your presence. It's mm. your skill. We need you on the show, and mm. so it's your one-linerness. If I have to be third in line, even though I was a co-creator, I'm fine with that. <laughs> co-creator. And, <laughs> well, that's Oliver Camacho. I, that's Tobias. Wright. I had an old fashioned in my hand when there this was born. There you go. Uh, Matt Cummings is also in studio, too. It's true. I'm very excited for this rainstorm that's going to take the temperatures back to the right decade of temperatures. Don't get me started. <laughs> and, of course, Weston Williams, the greenie. That's me, but, you know, the age before beauty really helps me on this order, so it's I'm true, I'm okay dude. with that. I'm the most beautiful person in the house right now. How, how, how you 12-year-olds grow those beards, Weston? Well, I just you know. know. <laughs> <laughs> Got to rub a lot of sand on it. My goodness. Yeah. Uh, broccoli. Well, here we are, World Cup Central now, the only sport that's really happening. And can I, I just I give thanks to the soccer gods for letting my team, England, eke out a victory over mighty Tunisia <laughs> this afternoon, two to one. My daughter and I were dancing in the living room. Oh, that's awesome. After Aww. after England won. Um, I'm actually really excited about the World Cup. The United States is playing to just no. kidding, they didn't qualify, guys. <laughs> but viva Mexico! That was a shocker. I even knew about that one. That was a shocker. Yeah. The defending world champions, Germany. And the internal conflict for me, since I'm half Mexican, but I'm also, like, Eurocentric, you know? And yeah. Like, mm, yeah. yeah. And I love the Germans. double trouble. I'm so, like, embrace your yeah. home, like, core. I don't yeah. know. I'm, 
I'm right. working up some sort of a, a segment for a couple weeks where we basically take the World Cup like playoff format mm. with the countries that are playing this year, but we do it in terms of like their opera prowess. Oh hell yeah, I <laughs> love it. I don't know how many wow. countries would qualify. <laughs> uh, well, I'm, I'm the U.S. probably doesn't yeah. qualify for that one. Oh, either. Yeah. Yeah. No, uh, no, Germany, Mexico. In the 21st century, the U.S. definitely does. But I'm saying you base it off of who's in the World Cup this year. Right. No? Right. Yeah. Mm. So I got it. I got it. I got it. Nigerian that one opera singer. <laughs> <laughs> Chalk Talk on Opera Box Score. It's what you're listening to, all right. We just laughed at, laughed at Nigeria. I feel like we have to retract that laugh. Oh, no. Nigerians I, I, it can It wasn't take a, a joke. slight in Nigeria. Okay. Okay. Oh, thank <laughs> you. Take a joke. Hey, it's I'm the sorry. Opera America 2018 conference is rolling into St. Louis. St. Louis. St. Louis. Thank you. Missouri, uh, the <laughs> home of the Louis. classic pronunciation. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's how they say it in Nigeria. That, I, oh, I don't no. Know. Um, Another shot in Nigeria. The, man. Yeah, man, we're hating. Here's the problem with St. Louis. Uh, obviously, it's the home of the hated St. Louis Cardinals. Mm, as, yeah. a, as a Cubs fan. You, Mark you, McGuire you is my favorite baseball player. Him and those <laughs> drugs. Uh, also, the, the uh, Theater Communications Group Conference, TCG, which is the uh, umbrella organization for theater. Their conference also happened in St. Louis. Uh, opera America, of course, is America's umbrella organization from opera. Opera companies of all shapes and sizes at the conference this year, except for the Metropolitan Opera. As far as I know, they never sent really? any sort of delegation. They are such in their own league. They're, yeah, they're at the yeah. top. Why they yeah. looking down? Don't yeah. want to participate in the conversations. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm wrong. I just don't think. I was at the conference in 2013, and I don't remember meeting. Well, I think it was because every year of the conference, it was James Levine who wanted to go and like hang out with all the. <laughs> Opera kiddos, you know, and like you know what, we just won't go this year. We just won't go this year. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You know, there's over 700 attendees scheduled for the 2018 conference. I think there's two reasons for that. First of all, because it's in the Midwest, and it's easy for many, many opera companies that are in the heartland of this country to get there. That's certainly the reason I'm able to go. Is I can hop on a train and I can go there. If it was in San Francisco, if it was in Miami, I'd probably be thinking twice about it. Yeah, and you know, I love you, that you're if, going on a train. It's really sorry, Weston. It's oh, really yeah. romantic that you're going to be on a train driving through, down there. rolling through Iowa. Well, it's yeah. a lot easier to drink on the train. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're if you're going to be down there oh, at the Iowa. conference, uh, you can find you can find George, and he can give you one of our super rad new buttons. We got merch. We got merch now. <laughs> we do have merch. We got to figure out a way to get people to call in and earn that. We're going to have yeah. the button gun, but you can also <laughs> donate a thousand dollars to Opera Box Score, and we'll get you a button. <laughs> get We'll, we'll sign it. Button. We'll somehow get there. <laughs> really tiny They're signatures. About one inch by one inch. <laughs> <laughs> we'll That's it. all we could afford right now. The theme for this year's conference is lifting many voices, which is, I think is a more general way of, of, of talking about diversity. That was the theme of the 2017 conference. the jargon of stuff like that so much, by the way. But go you're on. Not, yeah, you're not a fan of, of lifting many voices. I just don't like jargon. Just be honest about it. We need to get black people in this house here. So. Okay. And Here's, Mexican people and Filipino yeah, people. Yeah. I mean, they're going, they're, they're yeah. going in that direction. Yeah. They lift yeah. every voice and sing. You know. <laughs> exactly. Here's the other reason why I think there's over 700 scheduled attendees for this conference. Not just that it's in the Midwest, but because of the host. Opera Theater of St. Louis, when you look at their roster, when you look at their repertoire, they truly live this idea of lifting many voices, of diversity. We talked about it on the show last week. American Hero an opera by a Chinese composer American directed soldier. by uh, a Japanese-American director. What did I say? 
You said American hero. That's fine. I'm American soldier. Um, <laughs> he is an American hero. Yes, yeah. absolutely. I thought you were talking about me for a second, yeah. but that, <laughs> no. that's not very on no. brand. You are an American. <laughs> that's fair. Now, You're my hero. Mark Skorka, Thank president you. of Opera America, he was talking to the press about the conference, and he talks about it, I think, in a very uh, pithy way. Three layers to the discussion. He says, quote, the top layer is looking at the world around us and what's going on. And how does that shape our world of opera? The second level is topics that have a great deal to do with the creation and the production of opera that are cross-disciplinary by nature. And then we have this third layer, he says, which is very job-specific, nuts and bolts. How can people do their jobs better? So these are the three different layers that they're working on. There's all these sessions. Here are some of those sessions that I'm really interested in. First of all, the New Works Forum. That's kind of the big start to the Opera America Conference. Mm -hmm. That's where you're going to see the very latest uh, workshops, chamber operas, portions of operas, a song here or there presented. And it's really giving us a peek into what is coming up next. Anybody important on that panel? Well, I don't know if the actual repertoire... Doug Chicago Opera Theater, man. Oh, on the panel. I thought yeah. you meant the repertoire. Obviously, yeah. Hometown hero Doug Clayton from COT. <laughs> Our friend Doug um, Also, Jekka Berry from Beth Morrison Projects, one of the cutting-edge producers of new repertoire in this country from the Prototype Festival. David Devan from Opera Philadelphia, again, running the O Festival in the city of brotherly love. So, I mean, the people that are on this panel clearly built for this idea of new work. The actual pieces that are going to be on there, I don't know if that's been uh, released yet. I haven't seen anything to that effect yet, but uh, I'm sure, I mean, there's there's definitely a lot of uh, good speakers sort of on the docket, uh, in, <laughs> including the keynote speaker, John Adams, uh, and I am, I don't think I've announced this on the show yet, but I am a big uh, John Adams fanboy. Uh, one day I will get a tattoo of his name across my chest. Uh, my, my go, go for the lower right. back. So. For oh, your yeah. two oh, favorite absolutely. American presidents. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just that whole that whole that whole family line. Good stuff. Good stuff. But you know, I mean, he's uh, he's going to be talking there. I think I feel like he's going to be kind of. Um, uh, He's sort of gonna. He's not going to be really dealing with a lot of the sort of the nitty gritty of all of the uh, the the stuff talking about you know racism and uh, diversity and, and things like that. But I think he's going to be a big draw for people because he really is sort of the preeminent established composer in this country of opera specifically. Uh, and I can I hear all you saying you know putting out things that like Jake Heggie and your and your Philip Glasses nah. Nah, it's all about John Adams, baby, and that's why I'm going to get that tramp stamp. <laughs> What's great about the, the the John Adams keynote, which is on the um, second, no, it's on the yeah, it is on the second. That's on Thursday. Day. Yeah. It's on the Thursday mornings that uh, he's being interviewed by Timothy O'Leary, who's from Opera Theater of St. Louis and is on his way to run. Washington National Opera at the Kennedy Center. Mm. So there's mm. a great shout out to and the Laura Cominci is on that panel, who is the. Uh, composer of As One, which Chicago Fringe Opera produced uh, this year in Chicago. Yeah, she's featured pretty prominently on a handful of the panels throughout the conference. That's great to have good for her. That's great good for, for her. her. Good, good uh, representation. Matt Cummings, when you looked at this list of 
sessions. Yep. What was exciting to you? So I had a little, I had a little bit of a deja vu because there's a whole session that's just about dynamic pricing. Have we ever talked about that on the show? You know, funny enough, we we brought that up uh, two weeks ago when <laughs> we, we were did. talking about how the subscription model is changing. So mm-hmm. I bet that that would fall into the. Uh, into the nuts and bolts category. So what we're learning is that the Opera America conference, they've been listening to Opera America. <laughs> I think that they've just and been taking our ideas. Uh, here's basically. another thing for the agenda. Well, <laughs> yeah, those exactly. gentlemen at Opera Box Score are really on top of the ball. I would be really interested, uh, uh, George, when you're down there, if you attend that particular one, uh, s- taking notes and seeing uh, what the views of like the administrators are, because none of us in the room, even though we all have strong opinions about the subscription model and things like that, none of us are really administrative enough to be like, oh, yeah, this is how it is. This is what the prevailing thought is. Um, but, of course, uh, I know w- uh, I feel like some of us had come down rather hard on the subscription model last time, so I'd be interested to see if there's anyone else who actually knows what they're talking Talking about coming down on the same area as us. Well, there certainly will be. I mean, it, you know, Opera America Conference is full of administrators. That said, it's surprising to me more and more artists are going to the Opera America Conference. There's a whole track where they will tell you which panels you should be going to, which sessions you should be going to, mm. in order to follow uh, a path that's going to serve you as as an artist. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM Full House. Tonight we're talking about the upcoming Opera America Conference, Hall of Fame with Tobias Wright coming up uh, in about 20 minutes. And then So, George, are you going to be there on Friday? I will be there on Friday. So yeah. you have to um, go into the session uh, on Friday at 3.30 called Podcasting at the Intersection of Opera, Race, and Social Justice. <sighs> and then you have to just walk into the room in the middle of the session with your buttons in hand. You're going <laughs> to say, Opera Box Score, episode 122, Santosh Venkatraman. And then just like <laughs> throw the buttons and people He'll probably that? be there. <laughs> yeah. If we're, if we're <laughs> being we're honest. So <laughs> <laughs> will help you pass he's, out the button. Somehow yeah. he's going to make it to every single one of these events. <laughs> it's, it's true. Santosh is going to like divide and multiply his own <laughs> cellular code. <laughs> take Westworld style. <laughs> so oh, there's another uh, pa- panel that we're not talking about yet, which is the... Um, Site-specific one? What is the name of that panel? It's called All the World's a Stage. Oh. Look, on this show, I don't hype my own productions as a director. I, that's not why I do this show. It's to have a conversation about this art form that we know and love. I am on the panel for this um, mm. session about Look site-specific. Look you go, George. Opera. You share that sweet commission Sp- you get from that. Spread your wings. I, yeah, you I'm, ex- to I'm, fly. I'm just, first of all, I'm, I'm honored that, mm. to be asked to do it. Uh, second of all, it's something that I really love and have a lot of opinions about, and, and I'm excited to to talk to Boston Lyric Opera and Onsite Opera from New York City are the other two case studies uh, for the panelists, which are from a, a series of different companies that do architectural design, acoustic design, theater design. So, yeah, I'm excited for that. I mean, obviously, I think that opera should be taken out of the opera house, and I'm hoping that this session is really going to uh, reward people that already are into this aesthetic, and it's going to excite other opera companies that haven't taken that plunge yet for mm. some of their studio programming and that they're going to they're going to take a chance on this and see what great results it can give. Let's go back to uh the theme of this conference again, lifting many voices and one round table at the conference is called Don't Start Stop. Matt Cummings, tell us a little bit about why that session caught your eye. It it's 
not the way that people normally approach that question. Or, I mean, it's not, it's definitely not how we approached that question. Last week we talked about how do we, you know, how do we open it up? How do we open this art form up to people? How do we make it accessible? How do we uh, make people feel welcome? How do we make people feel invited? Well, you know, what more can we do? And this uh, this is a roundtable that's led by the president of Opera America, Mark, Mark Skorka. And he is pointing out some things that maybe it's time to retire. And other than, you know, that comes up a lot with blackface or yellowface mm-hmm. and that kind of things that we're doing on stage. But I, I would really be curious to hear from an administrator standpoint what other things they've identified as as stumbling blocks, as obstacles that maybe should maybe need to be gotten rid of, need to be changed. I mean, there's certainly... Uh, uh, there's more awareness of those kinds of things now than I think there ever has been. Um, and I think it's the time is really ripe for a discussion of that, particularly now when we're seeing a lot of... Um, a, 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 people are becoming more aware of these, in particular with the Me Too movement, where these unacceptable things are kind of bubbling up to the surface. It's more and more known. It's more acknowledged. And I think that um, there are a couple of things that opera has in particular, um, like you mentioned before, with the blackface, particularly performances performances of Otello, um, that just don't, they just can't exist in the 21st century setting. And I, I really like that this is going to be discussed so directly. Hopefully it's very, I mean, of course, I don't know. Yeah, we don't know the, the agenda, panel but, go, I would... but I, I would, I would hope that they address it in a very direct and non-euphemistic sort of way, uh, really engaging with um, what, what needs to change, what, if anything, is lost by changing those things, uh, and I think ultimately, you know, deciding what's, uh, starting the discussion of deciding what things need to be lost and what things need to be preserved. This, it begs the question, this idea, don't start, stop. Is it easier to begin a new initiative? Is it easier to try something new, or is it easier to stop doing something? Is it easier to break a habit? That seems to me to be what Skorka is asking the panelists uh, and the participants to do in this session. Which I think which way should we tackle it? Well, and kind of what we discussed a little bit last week, you know, we talked about taking initiative and being a part of a community, but then also what Santosh talked about, you know, how do you stop a habitual thing like people profiling someone of race in an opera house? And and I don't know if that's an opera house. I don't know if the, the company has any control over that, but it's certainly worth discussing the demographics. Yeah. Um, and I mean, there's a whole lot that you can add to that. But. And it, and it's a problem that clearly, you know, it's a, it's a refrain that happens on a lot of different levels within this art form in terms, you know, audience interactions all the way up to what they're actually putting on the stage. And even beyond that, you know, what repertoire are they programming? What yeah, exactly. singers are they casting? And it, it really... It matters, and it's a uh, it's a kind of a touchy subject, especially since so many of the so much of the music world has a big conservative streak in terms yes. of what they want, what traditions they want to keep alive, and you know it's time for an honest look at the costs involved in doing that. Well, that is kind of the difficulty, but at the same time, you have to really be. I mean, the the face of operatic audiences is changing right now as we speak. Uh, we have uh, lots of uh, conservative, older, 
um, uh, audience members across much of the country who uh, who want to hang on to some things that that the younger audiences don't agree with, and uh, I feel a lot of the big mistakes, particularly after the financial crisis, was uh, that a lot of opera companies made was to hang on to these things in order to preserve their audience, but that audience is not going to last forever. So these are hard questions that need to be asked, that need to be addressed, and I'm, I hope that they are addressed at the upcoming conference. It's Opera Box. We're in WNUR 89.3 FM talking about the Opera America Conference. The other side of it, of course, is the networking side. And again, Skorka, uh, he addresses this. He says, quote, you can't build a trusting relationship via email. Those relationships are created in person, and they're the basis for collaboration and co-production throughout the years. That is so true. It took me a long time to figure that out in this business. I've been doing this almost 10 years now as an opera director. It's not so long, but it's enough time to have, to have figured some stuff out. And it's just so true is that until you get in front of somebody face-to-face, I can only speak as a director, face-to-face, there's no reason they should take you seriously. Once you meet in person face-to-face and you're able to convince them, I'm not crazy, I know what I'm talking <laughs> about, and then, hey, that's a big part of that, it, right? That's a little difficult. I may be furiously emailing <laughs> you, but... But there's a reason for it. And look, so the the parties at Opera America, the networking, the, all the important stuff happens in the hallways, right? Mm. Five minutes, three minutes, just getting in front of the right person. This is why more and more artists are going to this conference, is so that the conductors, librettists, directors, singers, so they can just get in front of other people person to person. There's a big opening night party, uh, which uh, a friend of mine who's in the business, he goes, he flies in on the day of the party, he goes to the party, and he flies out that same night. Wow. <laughs> so He's he got does, his priorities. Party animal. Exactly. So he doesn't book a hotel. He didn't spend any money on a hotel or anything. He literally goes to the party, and at that one party in three hours... He talks to everybody he thinks he needs to in person, and then he leaves. It's in the spirit of young artist program auditions when you don't have any friends in the town where you're auditioning. Got to get in and get out. Get yeah. in and get out. There's also the uh, under 35 mixer. Huh? Mixer? <laughs> Which, well, it's, a, it's hardly a, nowhere. Key oh, party. Oh, I'm sorry. Key oh. party. That's not, not a key party, dude. Uh, I'm going to gate crash that, by the way. George. Are you 35? Yeah. I don't. No, I'm going to gate crash it, meaning. <laughs> I'm not allowed to go. Who's going to know? Because you're over 35? Yes. Oh. He's he's 86. You didn't know this, <laughs> Oliver? It's hard to tell. Oh, man. Oliver Camacho. No, because, See, when you're, as old as Ol- when you're as old as Oliver, <laughs> everyone seems to be younger <laughs> than 35. True. It's true. No, it's just that he's so little. Oh, and, oh you know, God. like... Uh, here we go. No, no, no. Here you know, go. like... <laughs> What, the, the older you get, the, the usually the, the taller, taller you taller are. You get. Yeah, so <laughs> oh Weston is. Would I'm the oldest the, person. You would By that to. metric, Weston's 95. <laughs> <laughs> I barely even fit in the studio. Oh my goodness! All right, hey Tobias, he's yeah. going to reveal who his choice is for the OBS Hall of Fame in our next segment. Hint: This singer performed at the 1990 World Cup. Where was the World Cup that year? That's your clue. That's next, only on Opera Box Score. WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, here's a tip. If you've recently started listening to our show, you already know there's nothing else like it. Week in, week out, you get our panel's hot takes on opera news in the two-minute drill, plus our patented segments like Fantasy Fockball, Monday Evening Quarterback, and Crunching the Numbers. But you might not know about some of the incredible interview guests who have gone inside the huddle with our team, like tenor Matthew Polanzani, composer Gregory Spears, intendant Kirsten Harms, and countertenor Jakub Josef Orlinski, to name just a few. Check out the Opera Box Score archives on SoundCloud. Just go to soundcloud.com and search for Opera Box Score. And you can tell us about your favorite interviews on our Facebook page and our Twitter feed. And now, ladies and gentlemen, this is OBS Hall of Famer, our enthusiastic, yet humble, salute to a distinguished opera artist who has gone above and beyond to contribute greatly, distinctively, and with grand significance to the art and honor of opera. With an introduction like Ooh. that. Oh, man, that's Ooh. the good stuff. Bias, right? This better be good. Hey, it's Opera Box Score, WNUR, 89.3 FM. Number in the studio, 847-866-9687 at Twitter, at Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist. We got Oliver Camacho here tonight. The oldest in the cast. We've got <laughs> Tobias Wright. The hairiest in the game. We've got Matt Cummings. Neither the shortest nor tallest. And I think that's it, right? Oh, no, what about hey, Weston? Yeah. The most short-sighted of the entire group. Uh, the OBS Hall of Fame. When I walk down the hallowed corridors it's of the OBS Hall of, of Fame, fame. It's, it's right next to Studio 3 here at WNUR. Oh, yeah. yeah. The floor's a little sticky. There's marble just Everywhere. The, light, the lighting is low. Are amazing, though, yeah, it's them. acoustically perfect. Yeah. The T- Hall of Fame. Yeah. Tobias Wright. Lead well, us down that corridor. So I'm glad that we've started this Hall of Fame segment. Um, it might this might be up there that what uh, is about to happen. I have no idea where we're gonna end up, but it's one of the happiest segments I've ever been a part of because <laughs> I stumbled into opera accidentally, and my first operatic hero was None other than Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, from who? Who? <laughs> uh, from Modena, Italy. Um, the, one of the most recognizable um, voices and personalities in opera in the 20th. In popular in, culture. And yeah. in popular yeah. culture. When people think opera, they think Luciano Pavarotti. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, his career spanned five different decades in the entire globe. Uh, personally speaking, he was my first hero, as I said. Um, Kenya? And I've spent countless hours watching interviews, listening to and collecting all of his recordings and reading about the man that would later become known as the King of High Seas. Just a little bit of background information. He debuted as Rodolfo in La Boheme at Teatro Municipale in Reggio Emilia in 1961, and his final bow was performing an aria he became synonymous with Nessun Dorma in the Winter Olympics in Torino in in 2006. He died in the Mm. fall of 2007 after a long battle with pancreatic cancer. Anyway, I love Pavarotti. Um, and there's so many, I think part of the reason that I love him, uh, was his personality and that's not unique to me. And I don't think that's unique to anybody even sitting in this panel. Um, but there's the personality, but there's also then the fact that he has an intensely recognizable voice and you hear it and there's, it cannot be confused. 
It's like a ray of sunshine. I was about to say that exact same thing. <laughs> it's it's bright. It's pristine. It's so clear with the tone, um, and it's artistic. And I love the man, and I love the voice, and that's why he's in the OBS Hall of Fame. For sure, though, that has to be the most distinguished honor he will ever receive. Oh, <laughs> yes, absolutely. Exactly. Unfortunately, he receives it posthumously. So. Oh. It's true. It's but true. he's watching us from above. I'm so, very happy. Tobias, what would you like to listen to first with us? Okay, so as I said, uh, he was my first operatic hero. So the first recording that we're going to listen to is uh, from a recording in 1979 at La Scala in Milano. And it is um, from La Boheme. He was singing Rodolfo here. His Mimi... Um, was his childhood friend Mirella Freni, which mm. I thought was interesting. I, that they were childhood friends and then went on to have massive international operatic careers. Um, but the reason, well, let's just, can we just play the clip? So this is him singing the aria uh, in Act One, uh, where Rodolfo has just met Mimi, and he's singing Que Jerry Ramanina. George, I really thought you were going to end that recording before anything. <laughs> I was just teasing you, bro. Answer. Just making sure you're paying attention. I was going to start pounding on windows <laughs> in the studio. <laughs> we want our C. <laughs> I forget if it's that recording, but it's another one that's earlier where after he sings that phrase and there's that little bit of silence, you hear the audience go, <gasps> like that. Like you literally hear the audience collectively inhale. So. He, when he finishes the next, uh, when he finishes that, I, the... It's not an applause that happens. Yeah. It is an explosion. And I mean, screaming, and it's awesome. The reason that this particular recording, though, is important to me is a dear friend of mine, I was in the music library at the University of Kansas, <laughs> um, and a dear friend of mine was like, hey, have you ever heard Pavarotti sing Labo M? And I'm like, Pava who? Labo what? <laughs> and he's like, are you kidding me right now? I was like, nah, I, I can't know what I don't know. What are you talking about? Um, and he brought up on his phone this recording and i can remember sitting there with my mouth open and i cried and i had literally no idea that the human voice was capable of that and that music could be that beautiful and i went home that day and this is why i chose Pavarotti to induct him into the hall of fame and because oliver told me it was okay um <laughs> i went home that day and i that was when my also love for youtube started because 
I spent hours and I cried more than I've ever cried. I d had no idea. And it literally changed my life, this little video um, in this dimly lit La Scala <laughs> I'm going to put attic. Matt, I, I want you to continue, but I'm going to put Matt on the spot for a second just to maybe, since I feel like he does a good job of this, explain why that tone quality, which to me, like as a tenor and you're a tenor and you're a tenor, sure. like he like rides. I just wanted to get it out there that I this changed my life. No, no. And it should, you yeah. know. But how, like, his voice sort of, like, rides the knife's edge and how, like, as singers, we know what he's doing. So what is it when you hear? What are you hearing? And what can you like, we acknowledge about Pavarotti's technique and tone? So. His sound has uh, that internal smile in it, and he keeps it all the way up to the very top of his range where uh, I, I'd say a more – and even though he does other things to, you know, make – make the transition from middle voice into his, into his top notes feel smooth and effortless. You never feel like there's uh I never feel like there's a gear shift. There's always yeah. still a lot of uh brightness and and there's always a lot of warmth to it through, throughout the whole the whole thing. Well, and I chose this particular part um of that aria because when you start at talor yeah. It's you have to you're constantly that entire phrase you're going up in passaggio, above it, down below, right into it again, and that's what makes singing Kejelera so hard. Kejelera, excuse me. And then if you listen to the final phrase when he sings La Speranza, you talk about not engaging the mechanism and getting in your yeah. own way. It is a voice lesson. And if you yeah. go, if anybody wants to listen to that clip, it's easily found on YouTube. But you can hear his voice change because he allows it to change and so the vowels manipulate themselves you never hear Pavarotti and think oh there he covered on purpose I mean sometimes he would darken his vowels but you can literally hear him change la speranza and it opens up to the top and it's just glorious but I don't but I, yeah but you don't hear you don't hear the mechanics of it right even though that's what he's doing well if you yes I guess my point is that if you're listening you can you can find them, yes. but you don't. It never sounds like that's what he was doing. It's mm -hmm. a really effortless voice. Yeah, yeah. With and I, we're going to talk about that. Um, there, with, this next clip actually, and and so he kind of uh, the second clip here is him singing Tonio in the Daughter of the Regiment at the Metropolitan Opera in 1972. After which, he did receive a record. Uh, number of curtain calls. Does anybody, Matt? You can't answer this. Does anybody in the studio know how many curtain calls he oh, got after this aria? Um, I'm gonna go with uh, thirty. <laughs> I like that. That's right. optimism. Okay. 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 Yeah. Do you know? Well, it's right here on your notes. It's, so it's, it's in our notes. Oh, I mean, I would have said curtain calls. I mean, like five would be a big. Five number. would be as an audience member. That's a big number. Yeah. I would clapping. be like, oh, all right, that was pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> he got seventeen. Yeah. Um, oh, and man. so we talked about we, uh, Weston. You mentioned just the ease of the voice, and, and I think, um, well, George, can we can we just play the clip and then we'll talk about yeah, it? Yeah, absolutely. Here we go. <laughs> Thank you. 
is Albert Boxcore on WNUR 89.3 FM. We're talking with Tobias Wright going through the OBS Hall of Fame with your legend, Tobias, mm-hmm. um, Luciano Pavarotti. Yeah, and so you hear him singing those Cs. And this, this aria is famous for the high Cs, though I think the tenors in the room would all agree that's not necessarily the hardest part. But that being said, Caruso didn't have Cs. Uh, Hmm. Domingo the, doesn't really have, never really had a reliable no, yeah, C. It, yeah. it's, it, not all tenors have this access to that sound. And when you listen to that, those are laser beams that are in the center of the pitch. He sings with such a beautiful line and such a clarity of tone. And that's why it's so astonishing and why people erupt. And he's not really the type of voice that you would expect to hear this ar- singing this aria today. It's kind of moved no. more towards the lighter ones where the C is... Um, a little bit lower in their range, the yeah. like the Larry Brownleys and the Juan Diego no, Floreses, like, who have a whole fourth above that. that Pavarotti they can... can make a, a high A sound very exciting, you know. Yeah. Mm. But high C is thrilling, you know. Yeah. Whereas like a Juan Diego Flores type voice, as much as I love him, like a you know, high C just sounds yeah. like average. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like middle voice. <laughs> like he talks on high C. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, what I love about hearing Pavarotti sing that aria is he is so cocky about it you know he kind of throws his voice around just enough to bring the character to life and also to show the audience that he that he knows what he's doing and they're in for a show yeah and so i agree with that and it was his personality that he shared that also made people love him and that's another reason that i think he deserves to be in the hall of fame is because (laughs) it's so funny that i say that as if we have any authority (laughs) whatsoever (laughs) oh my god i think he deserves like we're gonna kick out Pavarotti, you know yeah but um he so he had already become an international star, and I think this was the point uh, in which the United States really almost kind of adopted him as one of their own, as a, one of their own star opera singers that they could go see and, and be a part of. Um, about two years later, uh, he appeared, well, he appeared on Time Magazine, the cover of Time Magazine, um, and then Newsweek, and the Newsweek said he was the Prince of Tenors, and I just want to brag and say that I have that framed, Aww. and it is Aww. on my fireplace. And it is next. Yeah, we, we have yeah. a mantelpiece. You, you, you just sit there going, "One day." Is that next to your like your your decanter of port? No, but it is right next to our record player. Yeah. It is next to a record player, <laughs> and it is also next to a big picture of Enrico Caruso. You hipsters, <laughs> get you out! To, you have to wear an ascot when you <laughs> sit in the chair next to the fire. Where's your smoking jacket? <laughs> yeah. So, so he become he became this you know massive public figure, and his fame continued to rise. Well, he he already had a massive figure. Oh, he was, well, you know, that's one thing that a lot of critics of Pavarotti's will say is that he was ungraceful on stage. He was too big to act. And, like, to an extent, yeah, no, he wasn't a great actor, but he knew that. And he acknowledged it. And he said, but I have the voice. You know, there's video of him. And when he was younger, he tried harder. Like, the more he became like Pavarotti... The more he realized that people well, really just I, came to hear him. Sing, I've seen yeah. some some clips later in his career. If 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 he was put with a director who wasn't afraid yeah. to tell Pavarotti what to do, yeah, he could pull out a his Nemorino is really sweet. Yeah. If you watch his mm-hmm. Elixir of Love, like he's adorable and, and mm-hmm. a character who's yeah. just like a ray of sunshine. Yeah. You know, the right. pure humanity yeah. showing through, and that's really what he excelled at. He's always he always feels natural. Yeah, but like a, like a him. poet, philosopher, like Andre Chenier type of thing, like. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so it's gonna sound good, but yeah. so people started to really love who he was as a person, and then they started to see him uh, when he started. So he had more public appearances, and in 1981 he was on the Johnny Carson show, mm. um, and furthering his fame. But I, I just want to share a quote that Pavarotti uh, had, and it's this is in the book Devo: Great tenors, baritones, and basses discuss their roles. 
Um, and this is just a quote. He said, I'm a real singer, very professional. <laughs> Ergo, <laughs> I am an internal student, which is possibly my greatest quality. I also have a natural flair for phrasing that can be neither bought nor acquired. This is all a little bit arrogant. <laughs> just a bit. As a human being, I have goodwill for people, which must, I suppose, be counted as a quality because they, in turn, are full of goodwill towards me. It boils down to a mutual exchange of love. And so there's a few things from this quote that I think tie into the next clip. He talks about being an internal student. Um, he studied, he spent seven years learning his technique as a young man uh, before ever applying that technique to any um, operatic repertoire, um, at least putting it on stage. But what he did was he applied it to the Italian art songs. And Matt, can you talk a little bit about Italian art songs and kind of yeah, your opinion on that? Yeah, they don't, they don't have, well, it's not, my sense is that Italian art songs are not respected as much as a French or a German art song in terms mm. of their artistic merits. They're kind of seen more as parlor songs, fun songs, cute songs, happy songs, but they're not necessarily serious right. in the same kind of way. But when you get when you have one delivered, like he could deliver a song, mm-hmm. you would you wouldn't know. And so in this song by Francesco Paolo Tosi, L'ultima canzone, the final song um, he, this is on the Johnny Carson show and it's a hilarious interview. They get along swimmingly cause Johnny Carson's awesome. And then Pavarotti is awesome. Um, and this is one of my favorite art songs and a song that Pavarotti sang for his entire career. that level of expressiveness when you can hear those vowels those consonants so clearly could he get away with that because he was italian do you think oh absolutely i mean so he he had the ability to play with text and to play with the sound and he also had the ability there's no conductor in an art song Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and and it really comes down to you and the collaborator and he and uh maestro wustman who was the pianist here um had a uh, had a collaborative uh, partnership that lasted for decades. Um, Wussman played his American recital, his international recital debut at um, William Jewell College in Kansas City, um, and they worked together all the way up until um, some of his last recitals here in the United States. And um, I had the chance to work with Mr. Wussman, and it was interesting to hear him talk about Porrati. And he said, you know, at the end of the day, he was a brilliant man who loved creating. Um, and it wasn't necessary. like people like to say that he wasn't a great musician and that he couldn't read music. But you can't tell me when you listen to that, that that person's not a great musician. When you sing with that much uh, musicianship and you sing mm. with that line and you, you, can, you can inflect and share the tone of both uh, the language and I the I want sound. you to get to that clip, but I'm going to push back on that. I think that musicianship and musicality are different things. Okay, so you don't think that... Say more. No, no, I want to... We, that's a whole other... Topic, topic fight, another fight, day, so. fight, yeah, yeah. fight. He's very musical, and yeah. but you would yeah. never, you would never mistake him for an academic. Yeah, no, definitely mm. not. I guess, sure, we we'll talk about that when yeah. we go out for a drink after yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say though, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in Toby's camp after listening to 
um, that I, I never heard him sing that art song before you gave us the clip for the show. And um, I, I've always known him from the big, you know, showstoppers, the big galas, the big, uh, the big operas where he's mm -hmm. not really acting, he's just standing there and singing just directly at the crowd. And to hear that level of expression, not just in terms of just vocal quality, but in terms of knowledge of the text was surprising to me and surprisingly effective too um, right. um well he's in his native tongue and so he gets yeah. to play with it and, and he, I, he rarely sang outside of italian mm, too. there was a reason <laughs> and, again, and again so i mean you would talk about mu musicianship and I, I your languages that's part of that you know that's part yeah. of artistry and certainly he you can listen to him sing the french and and it's there are things that or are the english yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or the, the english <laughs> or the english no but i mean yeah, there, there's a, um, a clear, he goes into a different place when he sings these art songs. And really, Weston, if, I have CDs on CDs of him just singing art songs. and mm. it's Yeah, him and a piano in Italian, it's kind of hard to beat. So. Oh, it's amazing. And yeah. they're all over YouTube. Um, let's, go, let's go to the next clip. So we'll, okay, we'll yeah. So we'll go to the next clip. We talk about this, the, well, so he, when he sings the art songs, he's singing purely and he's not really performing or being a character or trying to produce anything other than just what the music is. And so the next character is Nemerino from L'Elysia d'Amore, uh, Donizetti. And it was one of Pavarotti's favorite characters to play. And he said that one of the reasons that um, he loved playing this character was he had his flaws, but he was uncomplicated in his nature and pure in his love. Um, and that's Nemerino. And so this is Una Fertiva Lagrima. crowd goes wild so it's that da damor it's so hard after you sing that a mm -hmm. the, getting that i think it's on a uh, on a f or that whatever that aval on that note i've know i've tried to sing this i before i could sing everything except for that one. Well, <laughs> like, and he does it <sighs> yeah but I he mean, sings it ah he really sings an italian ah you know and, and it feels like a hug you know yeah it does it really does mm. and the any the apportamenti down it's uh, it's amazing and you know there are probably better clips mm -hmm. from elixir of love that we could have played yeah. that would show the playfulness um but i just i think that that particular aria is i mean it's beautiful he knew he had that audience in I the palm say, of his hand <laughs> it's it's just beautiful for beautiful sake and i'm always okay with that yeah. in opera and it's so um, exposed, and it's just melody and like ostinato bass, you know. Yeah. So you can't hide in that aria at all, you know. Tobias, yeah. what are you gonna take us out on? Well, so Oliver, you kind of touched on it. It wasn't just stardom in the operatic field or pop stardom. He was a, a sensation. A sensation, mm -hmm. and 
part of that happened in, I mean, he already had a massive career by the time this happened, but the next thing we're going to hear is the 1990, it's the opening concert from the World Cup, the FIFA World Cup, with, hey, topical, um, and yeah. this is, this concert was in Milano, and he sang Nessun Dorma from Turando, and it, the BBC actually in their broadcast of it, um, of the World Cup, kind of started using this as their outro and intro for everything. So it kind of became the unofficial anthem. And so millions and millions, hundreds of millions of people, perhaps, because of the World Cup. I don't know if that many people were watching then, but got exposed to Pavarotti and got to hear this. And so this is him singing Nessun Dorma. Well, and the World Cup being in Italy that year, yeah, of course, was a big... Well, and this, does help. This yeah. led to the three tenors. This led to Pavarotti and Friends. This led to, I mean... Those are the arena concerts. This that... led, Yeah, this led to him selling out. This is a Central Park with 500,000 people or the Eiffel Tower concert with 300,000 people. This is kind of the uh, birth of that idea. It so perfectly encapsulates sports, opera, <laughs> passion. This idea of vincero, of I will win, mm-hmm. right? I mean, how could you not? I'm crying here in studio. Even how, though it, Italy only got third in the World well, Cup well, that well, year. Who cares, but. dog? It, like, that is just but so really already got first. We Winner, all. West Germany. TBT, <laughs> everybody. <Yeah. laughs> uh. Tobias Wright inducting Luciano Pavarotti into the OBS Hall of Fame. Thanks, Thanks for, pal. Thanks for letting me indulge. That was great. I, I don't know if it was if anybody else enjoyed it, but I did. There's so, there's really so much more to talk about. Oh, and, for and sure. We have to get to the next segment, but uh, I just want to say that, like, if you listen to his Verdi, yeah. uh, especially, like, when Balo Mascara or Rigoletto. I was going to say Rigoletto. You know, I didn't, I didn't do Rigoletto because okay. I wasn't sure what to play because so, it, he was... Well, the Duke. Let's just say the Duke. I, I said this on a different podcast. <laughs> Uh, but what makes Pavarotti like a sex symbol is his ability to navigate the passaggio. And it's hard to really define it, but um, singing in the passaggio that skillfully is almost like being skillful as a lover. And that's what makes those moments in Rigoletto so great, like the Bella Fide dell'amore mm-hmm. and um, the Questo Quella, you know, those moments. And the, the, and the, the that duet. first act duet. The duet, it's all about riding the passaggio, and it makes women go wild, and it makes the audience go wild. And <laughs> yeah. Verdi knew that, and Pavarotti knew that, and yeah. the audience felt it. So, <laughs> James Levine retaliates against the Mets. Boo, don't That's go around that. Let's talk about Pav. <laughs> on America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Sorry, dude. Keep it locked. WNUR <laughs> FM, Evanston, Chicago. <laughs> Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. 
Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. So, we call ourselves America's talk radio show about opera. Why? Because we are. With an ever-growing base of fans subscribing to the OBS podcast and a stadium full of listeners tuning into our live broadcast, we are in the ear holes of the opera audience you want to reach. Want to promote your opera-related service or event? Or propose to the bear hunk in your life? Maybe you just want the sound of your name memorialized on air by our announcer, Norm Waddell. Anything's possible. Drop us a line at operaboxscore at gmail.com for rates and availability. This just in, the two-minute drill. Time now for everything you need to know from Operaland in the past week. The New York Post writes that, quote, ousted Metropolitan Opera conductor and accused sex abuser James Levine is trying to discredit one of his alleged victims by dredging up a, quote, love letter his teen accuser once wrote to him. A new exhibition in Nuremberg's Documentation Center Nazi Party Rally Grounds graphically tells the story of how the Nuremberg Opera House and the site where the massive annual Nazi parades were held were dual stages through which art propaganda was instrumentalized by a murderous regime. The title of that show is Hitler Macht Oper. Adam Deagle has resigned as artistic director of Opera San Antonio after just five months, accusing the board of directors of interfering in his work and not allowing him to choose the operas the company would perform. Exit stage right Russian conductor Gennady Rozdestvinsky has died at 87. He made his name by popularizing music by composers who were all but banned by the communist authorities in the former Soviet Union, including Poulenc and Hindemith, and he conducted the 1974 Soviet revival of The Nose by Shostakovich. On this day, June 18th, it was the premiere of Weber's opera Der Freischutz in Berlin in 1821. That is your two-minute drill. You're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Oliver the Man Camacho. Full house here. George Cedarquist, the king, of course. With my my, <laughs> oh my, my jacks, there's been self Well, it, but here's the thing, guys. If it's a full house, there's got to be at least one matching king, and then the other three would be jacks. I'm the or king something. of the castle. Okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna get this this um, opera poker game going on. One of my colleagues in the opera business here in town really wants to do this opera. Men and women play poker. With it's going to be other. great. It's going to be real low stakes. Let me get to strip poker. <laughs> they, no, Who's that? it's not going to be the strip poker. <laughs> Weston Williams, you were interested in this Nuremberg <laughs> exhibition, Hitler Macht Oper. That's three different words in the title. The joke, of course, is that it's Macht, as in Hitler makes opera, but also Hitler is a thing, Macht as in power is a thing, and then Oprah as an opera. I think it might also be reference to Arbeit Macht Frei. Yes, I, I think I that's the third, that the well, third yeah. thing as well. Um, yeah. But yes, this this um, this exhibition is really fascinating uh, to me, and it's one that you know I I, I thought about a lot. Uh, fun fact about me: back when I was a wee little philosophy BA hopeful, um, last I, year, I, <laughs> last year I was, I was um, only six five. Uh, <laughs> I was just a glimmer, glimmer in Oprah, Opera Box Score's eye. 
Um, there was, a, a, I actually wrote uh, about this in, in relation to Martin Heidegger, Wagner, and Hitler, and where those, uh, those three things, because uh, Martin Heidegger was a philosopher who has similarly become tainted by the specter of Nazism because of his ideas uh, and connection to Wagner's music. Uh, and this this uh, exhibition is about sort of drawing the line between these big Nuremberg rallies, which were very staged, very public, still very much creation. Uh, they created our image of the Nazis as we currently know them. Um, but they were also sort of this dual production with the Nuremberg Opera House, uh, which um, used Wagner's operas, uh, particularly Meistersinger, as a... Uh, a sort of a propaganda tool, um, and uh, there are a number of reasons for that. Hitler was a big fan of Wagner, particularly um, a lot of the Nazi party was, but um, I think it's always very fascinating to me because Wagner, whether you like him or not as a composer, uh, is so central to any discussion of opera you have past 1860, you know, uh, you can't ignore him. This is some, uh, this kind of debate, this extreme of using this, uh, this man's music. And I must add, not, this wasn't a sort of a picking out and just sort of picking something that seemed very German and using it to their own ends. Wagner was anti-Semitic. He was an awful person. He had certain inclinations that were very Nazi-esque, proto-Nazi. And maybe just as important, he his music has a lot of rah-rah German nationalism in it. Yes. Yeah. They're all based on Germanic myths. The Meistersinger has a long monologue at the end about the supremacy of German art and how it's mm -hmm. going to rise up and bring the new day. With you know, a, it's not for nothing. With that a they villain that is, that is very um, anti-Semitic in terms of how it's produced, you know. Uh, and, but these are, these are things that I think the, uh, the opera community, um, we're in a unique position because I don't think there's any other form of art where such a central character, such a central creator has a connection like this to something that evil that bad and and, and a legitimate connection as uh, at that i think and it's something that bears discussion um and needs to be held up and needs to be talked about well this gallery is certainly doing that so mm -hmm. you should check it out online i don't think you can go see it in person yeah so. i can't <laughs> next <laughs> next time i'm in, in nuremberg um, but yeah, I would be very fascinated to see oh, this one day. Trouble at Opera San Antonio, of course. Tobias Picker was a previous artistic director of the company, the composer. He left in 2015, and now there's another change in management. Oliver. Yeah, we talked. I think we talked about this when this was first announced, but that's kind of like he's co-managing this guy, Adam Deagle. Is that his name? Correct. Co-managing uh, this opera company with somebody else and um, just dig a little bit into some of these uh, news sources. You find some interviews with him where he says, like, oh, I didn't realize that, like, it's a full-time job and you actually have to, like, you know, give up other things in your life, Be like present. singing and stuff like mm. that and show up to well, work. Because he's like, an and, accomplished singer. Yeah. He's been a professional Yeah, and he's going to go back singer. to singing. Apparently, right. it's like, yeah, I had, mm. you know. But I just wanted to touch briefly on the James Levine story. Because it feels like a little bit Trumpian right now, where he's like, aha, here's like this one little scrap of evidence which refutes all of this evidence that's against me. Like this one love letter that my <laughs> Stockholm syndrome... Which does no here. such thing. Yeah, I mean, exactly. So. The argument is that he man emotionally manipulated young 
boys. And yeah. this really seems to prove the other thing. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly. what he argues that it he it exonerates him, just like yeah. Trump argues yeah. that certain things exonerate. Like a text message says, "I hate Trump." Okay, right, right. so I won the so, yeah. case. Exactly. No, so, but but to your point, Matt, I think this more than anything drives home the fact that he had manipulated yeah. and, mm-hmm. and yeah. absolutely he, had, he groomed them. You know, absolutely. Yeah. And you it's see, disgusting. Go away. You see the numbers at the bottom of this article that's in the New York Post. He's he's got a lot. I mean, he continues to have a lot to lose. Yeah. And he's going to throw... Well, his contract with Ravinia that got canceled was for $500,000. Yeah, $500, half a million dollars. Yeah. Ooh, and goodness. he, I mean, if you could force a settlement to make up some of that money, yeah, you wouldn't yeah, be out of... for damages in excess of like six and a half million. You know, you'd throw everything at that at that lawsuit too. Yeah. But it's, just... it's, it's hard to watch and it's hard to read. Let's yeah. wrap it up. Good call. Bad go on Opera Box Score. Thanks, boys, for hanging out tonight. We got uh, time for a super quick good call, bad call. We'll start with Oliver Camacho. Uh, shout out to uh, Filipino, Chicago-based tenor Jeffrey Agpalo, who is killing it at Opera Theater St. Louis. I think for those of you attending the conference, uh, you'll be able to hear him sing Alfredo and La Trapeada. Weston Williams. Uh, this one's a little bit late, but last week's Opera for All concert, which is uh, in conjunction with Chicago Opera Theater, had 400 students from across Chicago land who created their own operas and put them on stage. And I was there, and it was kind of a magical thing to see all these kids walking away with a really important formative memory, positive memory about opera. And it's something that, uh, you know, if you have kids... See if you if you can get the program in your school, you know, next year. Four hundred, that's awesome. Yeah, it was great. My good call is on a personal note. My daughter graduated from kindergarten today. Oh my gosh, the end of an era. No more kindergarten for my kiddos. It's all over now. It's all downhill. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com. V o x e r s h o r t s. Our theme song is Vodka Inferno, written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Be sure to share and comment on our posts on Twitter. We're at Opera Box Score. And please leave a review if you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For Tobias Wright, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera with the father figure in your life We're back on Monday, June 25th at 9 p.m. Central. More interviews, opera news, hot takes. I'm not going to be on the air for that show. God only knows what the boys in the back room are going to dream up. Join them. This is WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago. Chicago Sound Experiment.